0: Hello and welcome to the Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in Fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host Dave Anderson. With me today, we have our Fantabulous producer, William Jeffries. Good to be here. <laughs> you got upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's Fantabulous today. Feeling Fantabulous. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about end-to-end testing. Mm, yes, both ends all Bo- the way. Yeah, both ends. One end being the beginning and the other end being... The end. <laughs> end I guess. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it like that, you want to do testing on all the things. I think of it as like a top to bottom, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's true. It's a top and bottom. It's like the top being the UI and then the bottom being like, I don't know, the database
1: or persistence
0: layer. Yeah, we've already talked about end-to-end testing where it's like the breadth of it where you want to cover all the features In your unit tests. I'm just really confusing this (laughs) concept. It's (laughs) a pyramid. We're talking about... Time is a flat circle. (laughs) No spoilers for the new season, please. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't yet watched.
1: (laughs) I haven't seen any of it. I just like the phrase. It doesn't really really relate to -to end-to-end testing at all.
0: (laughs) End-to-end testing is very linear. You start at the beginning and you go to the end. We're talking about writing code that's going to orchestrate actions that a user would take on a site in the browser itself. Driving that browser. Beep, beep. Driving the browser. All aboard. (laughs) Get your cookies in here. (laughs) And then actually hitting a database and making changes to the state of the database and all of the wonderful, beautiful complexity that arises from Everything that you have to do to
1: serve as a user. (laughs) It's like all of the things that can break. That's what makes it such a high value test is that it actually executes the entire stack. Anything that could break for an actual user gets tested by this one end-to-end test.
0: So what does it look like when an end-to-end test is
1: is written well? I think it depends on what you're writing it in, right? Because like if you're using... Cucumber and you're using Gherkin syntax that's going to
0: look very different than if you're just using RSpec. Right? Right. So I guess with with RSpec, much like uh, other testing frameworks that you might use in JavaScript that are kind of BDD flavored, you would have like nested blocks that have some text that describes what they are. And you might end up with some kind of of a thing that looks like a functional spec. How is Gherkin... Different from, from that.
1: Yeah, I, I think with Gherkin, you're taking an extra step and you're taking the time to write out what it is that your test does in plain English. Given I am a admin, when I go, on, go to my homepage, then I see the admin panel. It's not really code, it's English. And right. then under the hood, you have to implement definitions for each one of those steps.
0: And it's all in one place. Like you... Just put all those definitions in a text file somewhere.
1: Yeah. You have to figure out how to organize your step definitions, which is always a nightmare.
0: (laughs) So like the unification of those step definitions is separate from the actual like. Yeah, you can do like feature
1: file and then the feature file has a collection of scenarios in it. Mm -hmm. And then each one of those scenarios describes a flow through the browser. uh, assuming it's a browser that you're testing, which I mean, as web developers, that's kind of what
0: we're familiar with. Right, yeah. I mean, guess like it's just a way to write a test. So you could write it for even like a unit of code, like a class or some kind of uh, yeah, API. But, yeah, it
1: sounds <laughs> it literally insane to do a unit test with Gherkin syntax.
0: I guess I'd be doing it wrong if I was <laughs> using it to unit test you, my code. Yeah, I
1: mean, it would technically run; it would work. <laughs> the code would <we>
0: compile, <laughs> and I'd have a test, which is. better than not having a test that's true yeah so you'd be coming out ahead in that sense but (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of there's a lot of overhead to it yeah yeah there's a ton of overhead you have to maintain
1: that extra code you have to maintain english which is harder to maintain than regular code
0: yeah editors are
1: not built for that
0: yeah i've not i've not worked much with Gherkin syntax i've worked on projects that have it but then mainly i've i've kind of Mainly lived around the unit testing and written those kind of tests, yeah uh, and let the intent tests like do their own thing but like do do you actually need to have the exact same string in your definition file as you have like i don't know what the right word is even for it like in in your in your feature
1: file, yeah, your, your fe- feature yeah. file the feature file has to match the step definition verbatim unless you're using yeah i mean you can do regex and like string pattern matching stuff. So, like, if you wanted to have a step definition that's as, a, as an admin and as a customer and as a super user, like, you could have one step and then you could regex Just for, like for each one out. of those things. Yeah. And then have, like, a local variable that is the word, like, customer or admin or super user or whatever. And then you could dynamically change the behavior of that one step if you wanted to refactor and reuse your step it sounds super powerful yeah definitely it's a great i mean it's very flexible i think you have to ask yourself why you want this tool though because yeah i think it gets used for the wrong reasons often
0: yeah like what are the outcomes that's really what why we should be writing code like we should be writing code not just to write code i mean it's it is fun <laughs> 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 but we also gotta get paid that's true. We gotta get paid. Okay. Well they'll pay you even if it doesn't do so. Well maybe not, but yeah. I I guess like the actual end result that you're hoping to have is that you wanna know that your your application's working in a real context. Yeah.
1: And you can get that without Gherkin, like without that extra English syntax. I think the value you get out of it is mostly from defining terms it's like by forcing yourself to express it in english it forces you to verbalize exactly what it is that you want yeah the app to do and then now you have actual domain language in your head and so when you go to write the code it ends up much more closely modeling your domain you get that domain
0: driven design kind of mm-hmm. like being yeah, so if if you have like if you come to it with a sense of discipline then you can you can get that domain driven flavor I suppose you could also like end up with like when like language that doesn't match at all and it's just like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I can see the benefit of that. Like spending the time to think about the scenarios and what the actual user's cases are, like the actual stories. Because it, it, a style that you can write a story in is given this when the other thing, then I expect this thing. Like, like as, as a user, given that I'm a user... <laughs> When I do this, then I expect something awesome to happen. Yeah, and it does. I think
1: ease communication with product because you can point to a feature file and say, "Look, this is exactly what it does in plain English." Like this paragraph will tell you the actual behavior of the app. I promise it is programmatically enforced.
0: I've heard, I've heard like uh, tell of the idea of you know, a product manager or a business analyst who will write Gherkin files yeah, for Yeah, that's a nightmare. That's a disaster. <laughs> Don't ever do that. <laughs> that's, that's a trap. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's it's an idea, but maybe, you know, it's still it's still programmatic, so.
1: Right. I mean, they're just going to write the wrong... They're just going to write it wrong. They're going to forget about really important steps. They're going to make crazy assumptions that are really hard to program around. Like, you, you can't hand over that part of the I mean that's that's code it goes in the code base like you should collaborate I think actually it's really helpful for collaborating with product because you can write out what the app is going to do with them right and it's like they can pair with you because they can read the code that you're writing because it's English most,
0: most yeah. <laughs> product managers are pretty good at like expressing yeah. things verbally and in, in written form
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and it makes it much easier for them to point out things that are missing I,
0: I find it's really helpful to collaborate with
1: QA actually Mm-hmm. when you're writing those because they'll talk about edge cases that even product was not aware of
0: especially if they're like well maybe maybe not especially but like even even the case if they're like manual QA if if they're like just going and and banging on this page uh yeah yeah they're used to they they know all of the ways to break things <laughs> right it's really interesting pairing with some people with that kind of skill set because, like, you know, you work on a feature and you're like, oh, yeah, I really nailed this. And then you hand it over to someone like that. I, there there was, there was some reason I worked with that was just really bang on great, great QA. Hmm. <laughs> and, like, they just tore my feature apart. They're like, oh, no. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, okay. I got, I'm doing math, so I guess I should have. Thought, okay, fine. (laughs) I'll do it all over again. Yeah. What happens Uh,
1: if we put in a negative number? Don't do that. Back (laughs) off. Get away from the keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) No user will ever try that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so... I guess we've talked about some some great benefits of this, like some collaboration that we can have and some more assurances that our system is behaving as we want it to and we have all the features down. What are some things that that kind of go wrong or annoy you about? Oh,
1: my God. So many things. So many. Well, I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Organizing that code is really hard. Step definitions in particular are really hard to organize. Yeah, they seem so atomic. Like, by, by yeah, themselves, like yeah. they don't,
0: they may not have as much meaning,
1: right? And then you try and reuse them, and then you find that it, a word that seems like it means just one thing actually means a very different thing in another context. English, <laughs> yeah, English is not like code. Turns out, right? I mean, there's a lot of weird browser stuff that happens. Oh yeah, browsers are weird. Yeah, browsers are very weird, and you're driving a browser with a piece of software that
0: is. Probably written in a different language from the one that you're programming in. It's like it's shelling out to it in kind of an asynchronous way, right? Like you're you're loading a web page asynchronously.
1: Right. Yeah. You have to have a web server serving your app, and then you have to have another server, like driving a browser, which may be on an entirely separate machine. There's a lot of moving parts, and then browsers are just often non-deterministic like they're making a bunch of asynchronous calls when they're loading the page. If you have a front end if you have a like a single page app, and there's a lot of javascript. A lot of times things load in a different order every time you refresh the page.
0: Yeah, so I, I was I was looking at some tweets the other day about like react, the like the react framework and uh they were talking about how there are not guarantees about certain aspects of behavior of a render like something may happen one time, multiple times, or not at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) Wait. This is not how computers are supposed to work. (laughs) It's quantum. Yeah, I mean, the other day I ran into a problem where a test was flaking because we were getting a timeout. But when we watched it, the page appeared to load just fine. Hmm. And it only happened like, I don't know, maybe... one out of a half dozen test runs it would fail because of a timeout and we would look at the page and clearly it has loaded it's been loaded for like 10 seconds okay and then it times out
0: and so you were like debugging it even the headless browser you were like this was, headed it. This oh, was in a Chrome. headed browser driving yeah oh,
1: okay gotcha. and um it turned out that there was one network request that the page was making that never resolved it was like it made I don't know, a hundred network requests and all of them resolved some of them unsuccessfully, but all of them resolved except for one, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, occasionally just took like 30 seconds. And so the, you know, the browser would, you know, the connection would time out and we would get this timeout error.
0: Even though the, the, the user, even though, you even though first from base. a user's
1: perspective, it's like the entire UI is there and everything appears to be fine.
0: And this could happen in production and the UI could, never get this one little piece of data i mean like
1: yeah this is this just confused selenium it actually wasn't really a behavioral problem that affected any users Uh it's just um it broke the automated tests it made them flaky and tracking those kinds of weird browser bugs down is the kind of thing that i think drives engineers to abandon their unit their end-to-end tests
0: how'd you fix it in the end did you make it less brittle no, we fixed the, fixed the apps and
1: everything loaded properly. Okay. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> why does that one request take like 30 seconds? This is like, that's not performant enough. We have higher, higher standards. Actually, I think we ended up just eliminating the call because it wasn't needed. Okay.
0: <laughs> that's fair.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get to the point where your, your tests are so flaky that people don't trust them anymore if you're not good about keeping up with that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think if you're going to have tests... They have to be accurate every time.
0: Yeah, If absolutely. you get a test
1: that fails for the wrong reason, you have to address that right away. Because mm-hmm. if you let that problem build, then by the time you have 10 different tests that are no longer accurate, they fail for the wrong reason or they pass for the wrong reason, now you've undermined the confidence in the test suite to the point where people won't actually make decisions based off of it.
0: And then yeah. now there's no point. Now you're maintaining code for no reason. That's true. And and also like I guess if you do figure out what the source of flakiness is, I have experienced this kind of an issue where there's like an assumption that was incorrectly made about how the written the test was written. Like maybe the, the fixture data was populating data with a sequence that if you added a record right before it in the sequence of all of your tests running, it would cause it to fail. Some specific assumption was made. It's possible that you made that assumption somewhere else. So it might be a good opportunity to go and fix that assumption in other places or see like if there's a pattern of uh, bad behavior that you or someone else had implemented. Yeah, tests are good for that.
1: Forcing refactoring.
0: So you talked a little bit before about like tests taking too much time. That seems like a a big challenge. Like if you discover these end-to-end tests and you're like, oh my gosh, they're so amazing. I want to test everything. I want to know that everything is working properly and don't want to throw any tests away ever. I'm, I'm wondering how you balance that like want with right. the need for resolution of the test suite so you can run it repeatedly.
1: I've seen companies take different strategies. I saw one company just delete all but one of their acceptance tests. They had like one end-to-end test that ran to make sure that the app actually worked at all. And like it was just, extremely fast. It was very fast. <laughs> very fast test suite. Just the one test. They just reevaluated their priorities and they're like, you know what? Well, they looked at how many times a an end to end test had saved them from a production bug and they couldn't find it. <laughs> so they were like, I don't know if this is worth the investment. I mean it costs it costs a lot, right? You know, right. I mean, You're paying engineers to write the things and maintain mm-hmm. the things because they break and you have to go and fix them. And then you're paying for the server costs to spin up a browser and run these automated tests with whatever cadence you're running them on. And then there's the time that it adds to whatever processes it's a part of, like if it's a part of deployment or if it's a part
0: of merging. I mean it sounds like it's a really useful thing to have, but you have to think really hard about like which ones, which which cases, which features you're really gonna be safeguarding in this end-to-end test. Right. I've seen companies use
1: tags to categorize tests. So, you know, you have your smoke tests. These are the ones that we're going to run in production and maybe hook up to an automated rollback. Oh, yeah. Those are super high value, and they're going to be very fast and very cursory. It's like, is mm-hmm. the feature even there? Sure. Not are all the edge cases covered? And you can't really do anything that's going to mess with the database too much because it's broad. And then, you know, you can tag things for a specific feature. So Mm -hmm. if you want to test one specific feature, maybe that's the feature you're currently deploying or it's a particularly high value critical feature. Yeah, And then you can have like a regression tag for all of the stuff that you want to run when you want to see if anything is broken in a while. So
0: we were talking a little bit before about how browsers can be a little bit unreliable. But if you're a publicly available website, you can't control which browser people are accessing it with. Uh, How do you uh, decide which ones you do the tests with?
1: Right, yeah, your browser support matrix. Which ones do you care about? I mean, hopefully you have analytics and you know what percentage of your users are on which platform. Uh, Yeah, that always helps, like, kind of
0: having an informed decision about that.
1: Right, because, I mean, your user base might be really into Firefox, or it might be a bunch of people who are stuck on corporate networks that restrict them to internet explorer 6 or something awful um,
0: firefox 42 (laughs) (laughs) yeah it takes it takes a certain amount of boldness to just be like we will not support anything but chrome yeah (laughs) only the finest crumbs allowed on this website
1: (laughs) yeah it's a great power move i love that yeah. But the, the, so the, it's are, a strong endorsement, too, of your favorite browser. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, as a developer, I, I support it. Although, like, there are real financial implications of, you know, not supporting a browser, not supporting it well. Yeah. And
1: if your platform gets to be less popular, if your browser gets to be less popular, then you could be missing out on major market share yeah, down the road.
0: Yeah. I've worked on, like, a, you know, e commerce site where they had that kind of metrics like they knew how many people were on those crusty IE platforms and they could do nothing about it they oh, just so kept crusty. On, they kept on coming back they wouldn't upgrade their browsers but like we cutting when, me off man <laughs> but then when there was a problem like with with something that supported uh, or was was needed on those older browsers they actually saw like a financial impact cuz they were tr- they were tracking it they saw that conversions were down with this particular browser, and it had a real impact on the bottom line. They're like, I guess it makes financial sense to support this crusty browser.
1: Mm, yeah, that's sad. That makes me sad when old browsers win like that. <laughs> Just get on the edge versions. <laughs>
0: that that's another layer of complexity too, because like when when you're scripting, you're often doing it in a Linux environment, like with your headless browser. You know, only only the coolest t- toys. But then if if you're doing like IE 8 or 9. Yeah, then you got to test with it. I mean, if you want to automated
1: test and cover your full browser support matrix, including IE, then you're going to need a VM that can run Internet Explorer and a
0: Selenium node that connects to it. Right, like actually having Windows somewhere and a browser somewhere. Huge pain.
1: And I mean, it's not just limited to that, right? I mean, there's, you can get really aggressive with your browser support matrix. I mean, what about operating system? Are we going to, I mean, are we including that? Are we talking about X and iOS and Android and this Windows is, and
0: Linux? This like, is turning into a four-dimensional cube. This yeah. is no longer a matrix. <laughs> it's a yeah. T- it's a tesseract. Well, and then what,
1: what viewport widths are we talking about? right how many breakpoints do you want yeah (laughs) are we talking about visual regressions now i mean i guess if you want to go there yeah (laughs) like i mean normally people have designers will set you know specific breakpoints that they care most about but in reality they want responsive design like any viewport is going to look at least
0: not terrible right yeah just pixel by pixel, but you know it's it's really hard to do visual regression testing. Like there there aren't a lot of tools out there that do it well. Yeah, I haven't seen anything that I liked. Although there are some solutions out there. Yeah, I've 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 Googled it a couple of times. There are some sassy things. Uh, you know, s- software as a service not things with a lot of attitude.
1: <laughs> oh, that too.
0: <laughs> not, I, just, yeah. not just not discounting the level of attitude that is provided by these services. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to pay money for those things because uh, it's a non-trivial problem. Yeah, you
1: know? and an, an, I don't think it's that high value of a problem, honestly. Like, the visual regressions that don't affect functionality are not the bugs that I'm scared of. Yeah. Like, fixing them is usually pretty trivial because you go in and you tweak some CSS. Users experience is not that affected because they are generally
0: able to come up with a workaround. Right. They're able to, if they're enough, they're able to get through and, you know, and overlook usually, your misshapen buttons. Yeah.
1: And usually it's only in a certain browser or a certain viewport width, or some particular combination of weird factors that are as better resolved by telling those people like, upgrade your browser. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is good for you. It's good for you. There, and, and there are zero-day vulnerabilities <laughs> out there, people. Really. And <laughs> honestly,
1: if you're on IE6, you're used to the internet looking broken.
0: <laughs> that's that's true actually if it looked normal then you'd be
1: shocked <laughs> what how are all the buttons in the right position on this pitch? It's I mean, so I strange.
0: Think, i honestly think that people who are most strongly impacted by a visual regression are the people closest to you like the designers on your team <laughs> oh <laughs> we'll my god it's
1: nails on chalkboard oh.
0: exactly.
1: why is this shade we'll of just, red it's well, not in our style guide
0: yeah they will slay you yeah <laughs> No, actually,
1: for real, though, it would be great to hear a designer's perspective on all this because we are very biased as developers here. So if you are a designer and you want to be on the rabbit hole, hit
0: us up at Radio Free Rabbit on Twitter. Yeah.
1: And maybe we'll have you on the show.
0: All right. Well, I think I think we learned a lot about N10 testing. Like there's there's a lot of aspects to it here. Some awesome in moderation and some things that are a little bit more challenging, but overall very useful tool to have in your basket follow us now on twitter at radio free rabbit so we can keep the conversation going like what you hear give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole and never miss an episode subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast on behalf of our producer extraordinaire william jeffries and our amazing host michael nunez who's out being a dad and me your host dave anderson thanks for listening to the rabbit hole